I'm gonna I'm gonna record this, even though I, I hope that this will be pretty interactive, and thus this recording may be uh, worthless, and I may not use it. Um, but I ha sometimes I do podcast little messages that I do, and those guys are into podcasting. I'm the campus minister with RUF, which is the college ministry of this denomination, Presbyterian Church in America, and I work at Belmont University. Have done that for 10 years. Um, I've been actually visited the class once or twice, and have preached here on a Monday Thursday service a while back, so I'm, you know, some of you may say, you look familiar, but I don't know how I know you. I've been around Nashville uh, for quite a while. Uh, my wife, Wendy, is home with our three kids. We regularly attend City Church, which is a PCA church plant over in East Nashville that meets on Sunday night. And so um, I have uh, been married eight years to Wendy, who I know some of you all know, and we have three little kids, Cooper, who's six, uh, Isaac, who's about to be four, and then we adopted a little girl from China about a year ago. Her name's Amelia. And um, so... Um, we're going to look at Numbers 21, and I want this to be interactive. I know Stuart had told me that most recently you all have been doing a series on sort of the reliability of the Bible and interacting some with the Da Vinci Code, maybe some of those ideas. Yeah. Um, he actually did a lecture on that for us at Belmont. Um, so I don't know. Do, do you all generally record Sunday school classes? So you can get what Stuart had to say. He only had an hour to do all that material for us, so I'm sure he's been able to speak to it better here. Um, but Stuart's one of my good old buddies. You know, he used to do RUF, uh, of course, at Vanderbilt. I actually um, used to attend Vanderbilt RUF when they first started, back when Christy used to be Webster was there. And um, anyway, um, fond, fond memories of Vanderbilt RUF and Stuart, and I'm glad that he asked me to uh, come teach here. Uh, I didn't quite realize it was Father's Day when I said yes. <laughs> but that's okay. That's all right. My boys are home watching Power Rangers, so... For some of you, that may mean you're not going to listen to a thing I, I have to say. Um, for the rest of you, I hope you can get over that. Um, we're going to look at this. He told me that before you did the reliability of the Bible, you were doing a little series kind of on the big picture of the Old Testament and how God's, uh, the, the gospel and God's story and uh, grace and all those things come through, even through the Old Testament. Um, and I want to basically kind of start from that perspective and zoom in on one particular passage, one that is really pretty troubling and that raises lots of questions for us, not so much with regard to the reliability, I, I think actually the fact that these sorts of passages are still in the Bible is one of those arguments for the reliability of the Bible. It doesn't bear the mark of something that was edited by people who were trying to put a good spin on things. There's a lot of stuff in the Bible that if you, were, if you felt that you had the power to take things out that you didn't like, Numbers 21 still wouldn't really be in the Bible anymore, I don't think. Um, and so I want us to get at this, not only to to look at this passage and talk about, huh, isn't this interesting, isn't this interesting, but to actually really do sort of a group meditation on this passage. And by doing that, even to maybe model for us how we go about reading a passage of the Bible, particularly one that troubles us. How do we go about that? How do we go about even experiencing God through the scriptures? Not just reading it and saying, huh, isn't that interesting, but actually feeling the sadness, tasting the sweetness, uh, which should always be our goal, not just to inform our minds. No, we certainly don't bypass informing the minds. We want to go beyond that and actually even respond emotionally to God's Word uh, because it does, it does want to... God's Word is not just something for us to sort of put on the, under the microscope, but it's something that examines us, and we want to do that today. So let's look at Numbers chapter 21, and we're going to start reading at verse 1, read the first 10 verses. Maybe a, a passage you've heard before. Maybe this will be a new passage for some of y'all. 
When the Canaanite king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming along the road to Atharim, he attacked the Israelites and captured some of them. Then Israel made this vow to the Lord, If you will deliver these people into our hands, we will totally destroy their cities. The Lord listened to Israel's plea and gave the Canaanites over to them. They completely destroyed them in their town, so the place was named Hormah. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole, and anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. The Israelites moved on and camped at Obas. Now, I don't think you can read this passage without it provoking some questions, right? And particularly, I, I mean, we could, we could get stuck in the whole thing about, you know, Israelites vow to destroy the Canaanites in their cities. That's a topic for another day. I particularly want to look at why does God send snakes to bite and kill his people? What other questions come up, out, out, particularly out of that section from, you know, um, verses 4 through 10? What, what strikes you? Uh, is interesting or strange. I think, the, you know, when you come to a passage, the best thing to do is come at it with a pad of paper and just start jotting things down, just sort of brainstorming. What, what strikes me as strange? What strikes me as interesting? Every time I've, I've looked at this passage with a group of people, it, it's always fascinating how I see new things. And often people, you know, that are in the, in the congregation will see things that I have never noticed. I think actually... Um, we bring different questions, our different life experiences to the text, and see things that are there, but that other people may not see. So I'm always interested, and I, I don't mean this just sort of as a hypothetical. I want actually to hear from you all. Stuart promised me that I'd have no problem getting you all to talk, that if anything, I'd have problem getting through uh, the points that I want to make. Um, is that just a Stuart thing? <laughs> yeah, I suspect I'm kind of like Stuart, and there's so many wonderful little uh, tangents to go off on, but, but let's start with this. What strikes you as strange? Okay. Yeah. Why does that, why does that strike you? It's weird. It is weird. That's right. That's right. Well, let's stay on that point. What, what, I mean, what, what is it about that that's weird? Doesn't seem to be, yeah, idolatry. Does it remind you of the golden calf? What's the difference between putting a snake on a pole, a bronze snake, and looking at it versus, you know, looking to a, a golden calf, all right? Um, it, seems, it seems sort of ritualistic, doesn't it? It doesn't seem like faith. It doesn't seem to be the way God typically relates to his people, does it? I saw a hand over here. Okay, so we'll wait a sec, yeah. So stay on this, you know, putting the snake on the pole. What else strikes you when you think about that? What, what might make that... Okay. Yeah, that's right. Do you think, you know, why snakes? 
Um, there are other times when God's, you know, God's people rebelled against him and he opens up you know, a hole in the ground and people fall in. And, um, you've got Acts chapter 5 where Ananias and Sapphira lie to the Holy Spirit and they're struck dead. There's lots of different things. Why snakes? And I, I do think, Bill, that there is a connection with Adam and Eve because um, there's actually a pretty similar attitude of murmuring and doubting the Lord's goodness and despising his provision. Um, I think that the serpent and the snake definitely gets us thinking in terms of Adam and Eve. Um, and what's going on with that? So, so that's that's really interesting. Snakes. Um, that was that was your point, right? Thinking about that, yeah. And and just the irony that snakes are supposed to be bad things, but here they're it's it's sort of turned around. It's good and it's bad. The, the image of a snake in this passage. Anything else? Yeah. Right. That's right. Yes. This definitely raises questions about who is this God? Is he consistent? Why does sometimes he seems to sort of break out against his people, is a phrase that the Bible uses, and other times he seems more patient? That's definitely a question. How long do you think it, anybody know how long it takes to cast a bronze serpent? They're probably in a hurry, yeah. But I still, I still think it's, it doesn't seem like a very immediate solution, and that seems strange. I mean, you've got, you know, try to put yourself in the situation. You know, mothers, fathers, thinking about your children being bit and dying, and God says, make a snake and put it up on a pole. And when you get that done, then maybe, the, you know, the healing will begin. That's troubling. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. The healing method seems so strange. I think it drives us to say he's got something bigger in mind than just healing them from snake bites. God's driving at something bigger. He has to. It's such a strange thing that he does. And why does he make them look up? Where do snakes live? On the ground. What's the last thing you want to do when you've got poisonous snakes down on the ground to look up, right? It's pretty hard to look look up at the pole and sort of cover your bases. What's that imply? Painful, kills people. And yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I, I mean, goodness, so so many so many troubling questions about this this passage. It seems it seems cruel, really. Are are you are you okay with saying that? Uh, when you read the Bible and saying this doesn't seem to fit with God's character, this doesn't. Um, 
this really strikes me strange. I remember R.C. Sproul, some of you may be familiar with him, he's kind of famous Reformed Bible teacher, theologian, said the best way to grow as a Christian is to go through the Bible and underline everything you don't like, meditate on that, because either you need to change or God needs to change. I think that this passage, you know, provokes that sort of approach or else it makes us run away. Um, so, so why does God send the snakes? I mean, there's a number of ways to answer that question. Um, ultimately, directly, there's because of their murmuring. And murmuring doesn't seem so bad. I mean, like, like you mentioned over here, okay, who of us here is not engaged in murmuring? Or even this morning is, um, has a murmuring heart. Is murmuring really that big a deal? I want somebody to look up Jude, verse 16. Who'll do that? Raise your hand. Tell me you're going to look it up. Somebody. Jude 16. Somebody can find Jude. It's right before Revelation. Okay, you got it? Lori's got it up here. This is interesting. It's a passage talking about the kinds of things that will be dealt with when Jesus comes back again. Yeah, read, read that. Yeah, 16. Yeah. Back up a verse. What's the verse before that? Just the context. Yeah. So it's saying, you know, God's coming to, to, to bring judgment against all this ungodliness, and the first thing spelled out in the list is not, you know, homosexuals, people who, you know, murderers. You know, people I say, well, you know, I haven't killed anybody. But God here puts murmuring and grumbling first on the list. So I guess it is a pretty big deal. Seems to be a pretty big deal. Seems to be a big deal. Um, and the question is, why? You know, what, what is, what's going on here? I, I really, you know, think the way to understand this, this passage is to understand uh, murmuring and the idea that God does not back down from his call for us to look at him for provision, even when we despise the provision. Again, he could have just healed them from the snake bites in response to Moses' prayer. He could have driven the snakes away. But by driving them to look at a bronze serpent, he heals more than just their bodies. We actually get a glimpse of what he's doing, which is so much bigger than just bringing sort of temporal fix to the problem. He's getting after the real heart issue. It's a, it's a strange healing method. And I think when you, you think about it, you go, okay, this doesn't make sense. Obviously, on the surface, this doesn't make sense. It drives us to reflect then on the passage and begin to think, what is, what is God doing? It seems cruel to make them look at a serpent when many of their friends and family had just died by serpent bites. Who wants to be reminded? Who wants to be reminded of that? And it's, you know, the, the, what I was trying to get you to um, see is it seems that the snakes are an ongoing problem. It, even after they build the bronze, it says whenever the people, and so, so from then on, whenever somebody was bit by a snake, they were to look at the bronze serpent, they'd be healed. Even when they build the bronze serpent, the snakes are still there, is the implication the passage gets us uh, to. There's this interesting thing that God actually brings healing to them by reminding them of their sin and their shame. 
that's really fascinating. Um, and like I said, there is a, uh, a connection with Adam and Eve who doubted God's provision um, and his goodness and his provision. Why does this healing seem so ironic? That God would heal them by making them look to his provision. It seems ironic because that's, that's what they're doubting. That's what they're having struggles with, right? It's God's provision, right? The manna is what they're despising, right? When it says here in verse 5, we detest this miserable food. What's the miserable food? It's the manna that God has given them. You see, God was providing for them. You also see it back in verses 1, 2, and 3. There was a, a problem with um, you know, this other you know, nation that had captured some of their people. And they asked God to help them, and he did. So he provided for them militarily. And it's interesting how they still decided to go around Edom, um, even after God had proved his faithfulness to them. And he was providing for them uh, through things like water and bread um, and the fact that their soles, their shoes did not wear out. There are all these things that God mentions. Um, I think ultimately what's going on is they're more interested in having God be their divine pharmacist than the divine physician. God is providing for them, but he's not providing in the way that they perhaps would choose. And I think they're very much like us, that we would prefer to write the prescription, to make the diagnosis, and have God fill it, rather than let God be the divine physician. And God sees something much bigger than just sort of, okay, you fell into murmuring. Now, the murmuring is an expression of their continual, habitual looking to their own provision and thinking that they know better than God. What are the signs of a murmuring heart? Because we try to conceal it, but how, how, how do you know when you've fallen into murmuring? And where does murmuring come from? Thoughts on that? Well, that murmuring is, um, I guess it would be sitting in judgment upon God and his provision and declaring it um, not right, not good enough. And ultimately, it's an indictment, just not just of what God provides, but of who God is. You're doubting God's, doubting God's goodness. Yes. Doubting God's goodness, doubting God's provision, doubting God's wisdom, all sorts of things. I mean, it starts out as, you know, I don't like this circumstance, or I don't like this provision, or lack of what I consider lack of provision. But ultimately, it connects to doubting God and his goodness and his wisdom, which means ultimately it's, it's a result of the pride of our hearts to think that if we were God, we'd be doing a much better job of things. Right? Now, do you recognize the sin? Yeah. Um, and how does the gospel deal with our pride? How's the gospel? Yes. Shows us our inability. Um, but when you think about the cross, it shows us in particular two things. It shows us God's love, his commitment to his people, and it shows us that we deserve death and hell. It shows us our shame. Um, it's, it's one of the reasons I think that Jesus picks up on this passage in John chapter 3. and says this is speaking about me, but we'll get to that in a minute. Um, but think about that. The gospel, when the, when the gospel calls you to look to Jesus and him crucified, it's causing you, calling you to look at God's love manifest, and it call, it's calling you not to forget about your sin, 
but to remember it. You can't look at the cross without being humbled and being reminded of your sin and your shame. And what you see in the cross, as well as in this passage, God is doing battle against our unbelief and our pride. And that salvation comes through looking, right? But here's the interesting thing. This isn't the only passage that deals with um, the serpent. Does anybody know where else this serpent gets mentioned in the Bible, this bronze serpent? In John 3. There's one other place before we get to John 3. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know where? Yeah. 2 Kings 18. Look at 2 Kings 18. It's a little passage. might be tempted to overlook it. But it's, I think it throws very interesting light on this whole idea about God's provision and what we do with that. 2 Kings 18, verse 1, it says this, In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He's a good king, you remember. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places. Those are the places where Israel was worshiping other gods. He smashed the sacred stones and cut down the Asherah poles, which again are connected with pagan worship. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made. For up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Nehushtan. They even named it. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. So what does this tell us about God's provision? What do we tend to do to God's provisions? Worship the provision rather than the provider. Hmm. How does that, how does that play into us? Turning God's provisions into idols. Even naming this, this bronze serpent. I don't think that's what God intended. I don't think that's what God intended. I think, you know, think about how this plays itself out in your life. God gives you a job to provide for you, and you become a workaholic. God gives you kids to help you understand all kinds of things. But I think one of the things, one of the things he helps you understand is that, you know, um, how much we need the Lord, how impatient we are, right? And, and we end up, you know, trying to control them. Right? We need to look beyond the provision to the one who provides. And I'll tell you, you know, thinking about what God is doing, this, this whole passage here in, in Numbers 21 takes place when God's people are wandering around the desert. One of the best passages for understanding what God is, is doing in the wandering in the desert is in Deuteronomy 8. And listen, listen to this. It starts at verse 10, but you could write this down, Deuteronomy 8, 10, and look this up later. God says this, when you've eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. In other words, when you've, when you've enjoyed the Lord's provision, connect it back to him. Don't be like Bart Simpson. Bart Simpson likes to pray, Lord, we pay for all this stuff ourselves, so thanks for nothing. And I think that that attitude is in Christian hearts more than we realize sometimes. But God says, be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build, build fine houses and settle down, 
And when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful desert, the thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the desert, something your fathers had never known, to humble you and to test you so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And so confirmed his covenant, which he swore to your forefathers, as it is today. God, God wants us to understand that he is the one who's given us whatever we have. And he wants us to connect that back to him, because ultimately, God wants the why questions to turn into who questions. In other words, the people are saying, why has he done this? Why has he given us this miserable food? Why has he led us out in the desert? And what God wants to, them to drive to is to consider, who is this God? He says in Deuteronomy, what I'm doing is trying to get you to understand who I am, to not forget me and who I am. And you're thinking here all the time about these why questions. Why this? Why not this? It's not that those questions aren't important, but... It sort of, if you picture relationship with God as sort of, you know, going down this river, sort of the idea of a journey, the, the why questions become these little eddies sometimes, these little tangents, and we just are kind of sort of going around and around and around. And we sort, it's, not that, it's not that they're not important, but ultimately they have to get us to the who questions. And I think that that's something that God is doing here. Um, you know... God's provisions are not designed to make us self-sufficient. They're not designed to make us self-sufficient, but to keep us needy. And the question you have to ask when you think about God's provisions are, are you looking to them, are you looking to God to relieve your neediness rather than your need? Do you think that, do you think that God is interesting, in, interested and is working for you to get rid of your neediness? Or is he actually wanting you to become more and more dependent upon him. I think if you go back again to Genesis, you see that God created Adam and Eve to be in a relationship of dependence upon God. And you see over and over and over again, God has not backed down from that plan. It's the only way to understand a passage like this. That God is not just interested in sort of helping his people to have a nice smooth existence. I mean, for crying out loud, they wandered around the desert for 40 years. And if you ever look at a map, it sort of doubles back, the, the route doubles back on itself, it goes around in circles. It doesn't seem like the most efficient way from point A to point B, unless God is actually interested in something much bigger than just getting them from point A to point B. And I think that this passage is saying that. Now, Jesus applies all this to himself in John chapter 3. And we basically, you know, when he's talking to Nicodemus, and he's saying, look, you don't understand all this stuff, you don't understand what the Bible's talking about, um, you need to understand this, that salvation is by looking, and particularly um, what Moses is teaching in this passage, what God is teaching in this passage, is that you need to look. Salvation is by looking, and particularly looking at the Son of Man who will be lifted up. And in the Gospel of John, lifted up is always a reference to the cross, where Jesus was put on the cross and lifted up. And he's always talking about, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. So Jesus says, 
that this passage is ultimately teaching us about me and about salvation, how salvation is by looking. And like I said, the fascinating thing about the cross is that to look at the cross, just like to look at the bronze serpent, is a reminder both of the faithfulness of God and his provision. The thing that they didn't like, God doesn't let them get, get, get around it. He says, no, you're going to have to look to me. You're, I'm not going to back down from that. But in looking at me, you're also going to look even again at your sin and your shame. I love this, this uh, quote from a guy named Vinette uh, who, who writes about the cross. He says this, the cross is both death and life, condemnation and pardon, weakness and strength, shame and glory. The cross kills and makes alive. It wounds and it heals. It is wrath and it is love. It is terror and it is tenderness. It is righteousness and it is grace. It is Satan's victory and it is Satan's overthrow. It saves in crucifying and it crucifies in saving. All hell is there and heaven is there. Rebellion is there and reconciliation is there. To look at the cross is to look at both heaven and hell. It's, it's to look at your greatest shame and your only hope, right? A couple, uh, I guess a couple, couple other points. 30 minutes isn't a lot of time to have a uh, sort of interactive discussion, so I, I feel like I've monopolized a little bit, but that's okay. Like I said, God wants to turn their why questions into who questions. He wants them to know him through his provision. You see, murmuring is usually expressed in questioning why God is doing what he's doing. And it usually exposes a heart that's more interested in getting out of trouble and getting out of suffering than in knowing God. What God wants to expose is, are you more interested in knowing him or in relieving your pain and your suffering? Are you just interested in the why question, so if God will tell you why, then you can fix it? Or are you interested in actually knowing him more deeply through even asking, who are you that you would save people like us and that you would, you would send your son to die on a cross? See, the healing is a constant reminder of how much they need him because it also is a constant reminder of their sin. And, and here's this, this whole idea. I mean, they turn the Lord's provision into an idol. Do you do that? How, how often do we do that? There's the bell, huh? I mean, here's an interesting thing. One of, one of my favorite authors is a guy who lived back in the uh, 1700s. His name was William Romaine. William Romaine. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of William Romaine. You can, you can get a, a book of his letters, which are, are really wonderful. And in one of his letters, which are basically sort of his way of doing pastoral counseling, people would write him and ask him questions about things, and he would send them letters in reply. Um, and in one of his letters, he has somebody who's, who writes to him and is talking about how they, they, they are kind of discouraged because they, they feel like they, you know, whenever they think about, am I really a Christian, um, and they look at their faith, they just get, get really discouraged, and they see all kinds of problems with it. And Romaine writes back and says this amazing thing. He says, your real problem is that you've made a Jesus out of your faith, that you're looking at your faith rather than looking at Jesus. And the way I try to explain that to college students is, is, is to think about this. Think about having a relationship, say a dating relationship, that is, is really just these constant DTR talks. You know DTR? DTR, define the relationship. 
You ever been in a relationship where like virtually every time you get together, you're talking about the relationship, but you're ever enjoying the person? It tends to kill the relationship. And see, same thing happens if you're constantly looking at your faith rather than looking at Jesus. But salvation is by looking. It's not by virtue of the strength of, of your look. It's by the object of, of what you look at, right? It's a very difficult lesson for Christians to learn, though, isn't it? Um, ultimately, you see, the question is, do you want a God who loves you so much that he's willing to risk you misunderstanding what he's doing? A God that loves in a way, like Numbers 21, is an expression of his love and his care for his people and his commitment to their deeper healing. It is. Deuteronomy explains everything that God is doing with his people in the wandering in the desert. Now, it, you know, I, I don't know, you know, th were the people that were bitten and didn't get a chance to look at the serpent, were they saved? I don't know. I, I don't think we have to conclude that everybody who died in the desert, you know, wasn't a Christian, but maybe. I don't know if there's enough evidence to sort of draw that conclusion. But I do know this, that God is loving his people even through what seems to be really strange ways of doing things. And I don't think that that's changed much. God continues to love us and to operate on a timetable that's different from ours in a way that often seems to make no sense. Like when he says, look up, even while you've got poisonous snakes around your feet. <laughs> make, a bronze, make a bronze serpent. I know it doesn't seem like it's going to be fixed today, by the end of the day. That's okay. Um, you know, I, I, I love this, this thought of Luther. Martin Luther said one time, I know not where he leads, but well do I know my guide. Where is your hope, ultimately? Where is my hope? Is it that I know what God's doing and I can figure it out? Or is it that I've come to know my God even better? That he's continuing to blow up the little boxes that I want to put him in? Am I thankful that God will refuse to be God on a leash? Am I thankful that God will not be content to be the divine pharmacist? See, God is saying, I've diagnosed your problem as much more serious than snake bites. You know, there's two great threats to God's promise in Genesis 3.15. Do you know Genesis 3.15? I hope if you've been talking about the big picture of the Bible, I'm sure Stuart's mentioned it much. It's the idea that God promises, right after the fall, he promises that he will bring uh, one who will crush the head of the serpent. Right? speaking about Jesus. And that is really the most important promise in the Bible. And the whole Old Testament is sort of a story of God's commitment to that promise. But there are two great threats to that promise. There are the external en enemies, like these people, these Canaanites. But then there are also, in some ways, maybe even the greater enemy to God's promise being fulfilled is the unbelief of his own people. And what you see God doing in the desert is not just delivering his people from the Canaanites, but actually delivering them from their sin and their unbelief. And it's still that way. God is going to do battle against our unbelief. Because the ultimately, the only way to truly trust a God that's this bizarre <laughs> is to look at Jesus and say, I may not understand everything that God is doing, but I do know this. This is bedrock. I know this. That whatever's going on in my life, if I'm a Christian, can never be an expression of his hatred of me. 
because Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath to the very dregs. I know that what he's doing can't possibly be because he doesn't care about me. Because what is the cross if it's not an expression of the commitment of Jesus to love me through hell and high water, literally? So I may not know what he's doing, but I know that it must be about showing me his love and his faithfulness and driving me to a deeper dependence. You know what's interesting? You think about the book of Job. You know James, there's a little verse at the end of James, chapter 5, where God reveals what God was at doing in, uh, through the book of Job. He says, what did Job discover? That God is full of mercy and compassion. And when you read the book of Job, is that what you discover? That's what the book of Job is about. That's what number 21 is about. It's what every bizarre story in the Bible is about. Because ultimately the why questions are important, but if they don't drive us to the who questions and to a deeper relationship, then we've missed it. And when we get to that deeper relationship, then we approach a passage like this and we say, God, okay, here's where you go. You go from sort of saying, oh, that's interesting, to saying, you know, even, even now we're going to close in prayer. And I want us to think in terms of, Lord, thank you, even though I don't like this. <laughs> Lord, this hurts. Because this, this exposes the fact that I'm more committed to a smooth, comfortable life than I am to knowing you. And a lot of my murmuring is because I refuse to admit that you know what you're doing, that you know better than me. Lord, this is sweet to taste that you love me so much that, that you would send Jesus to die. Because ultimately, bronze serpents can't save. Ultimately, it's God's provision that saves. As much as we despise it, God will not back down. Everything he's doing in your life is to drive you to deeper dependence upon him and his provision. That hurts, but it's also so sweet to taste that. Uh, I close with, this, with this, this great hymn, George Matheson, A Love That Will Not Let Me Go. You know this hymn? George Matheson wrote this hymn on the day of his sister's wedding. It may seem a strange hymn to write on the day of his sister's wedding because it's all about suffering and pain. But what you need to understand is that when he was in seminary, he had started to go blind. He was engaged, and the woman he was engaged to left him and said she didn't want to go through life married to a blind man. Yet nonetheless, he was a pretty successful pastor and pastored a congregation of around 2,000 people in Edinburgh in the 1800s. And his sister, who was now getting married, had actually been the one who lived with him and helped him with just sort of daily tasks. And um, for a blind man, it was pretty difficult. They didn't have sort of laws and policies that helped people with disabilities like we do in our day. It was really difficult. Not that it's not difficult today. That's not my point. But on the day of, of, of the, her wedding, he stayed home. And he said that he struggled with something just of immense sadness. And yet as he wrestled with that, he wrote these words. Words that he said came to him. He wrote a lot of hymns. He said this one came to him almost dictated in about five or ten minutes. It says this, O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. O life that followest all my way, I yield my flickering torch to thee. My heart restores its borrowed ray, that in thy sunshine's blaze its day may brighter, fairer be. Now listen to this one. O joy that seekest me through pain, not in spite of pain, but through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. See what he's saying? He's saying, I, I begin to understand who you are. How can I close my heart to that? 
I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain. That morn shall tearless be. Remember the big picture of the Old Testament, the story of the rainbow? Why does God give the rainbow? He gives the rainbow after he destroys the earth through a flood as a sign that he will never destroy the earth by flood again. And it's a pretty appropriate sign because what do you think Moses would feel like every time it started raining after the flood? And yet even through that threatening you know, appearance, God is going to send a sign, a tangible sign, that I'm committed to you. And what is the sign? It's a bow. And it's not a bow like you wear in your hair. The Hebrew word is the battle bow, which stands about this tall. And it's a picture of a bow that's cocked and aimed like that or like that. It's like this. It's aimed at God himself. God gives a sign of the covenant, a picture of a cocked battle bow aimed at himself. And the reason that Matheson can look back at that is not just because of God's promise, but to know God's promise is not vain because God's promise has been made and kept at the cross. Therefore, pain can never be an expression of a lack of God's commitment to his people or the fact that he's forgotten you, or the fact that he hates you. It's always an expression of God's commitment to his people. Joy seeketh us even through pain. Let's pray together. If a couple of you want to pray, um, thanking God, repenting, um, briefly, because I know we're, we're out of time, um, but I'd love for a couple of you to, to help us um, connect our head and our heart here through prayer, and then we'll close.